Well, as Brandon read today, we're going to be in Ephesians, or excuse me, Acts chapter 18 today. But as you have your place in Acts chapter 18, I want to start off today with a well-known passage that you know. But if you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, this is a passage that you might hear in a marriage seminar or conference or sermon. Um, It's one that we uh, love to hear about the the institution and the covenant of marriage, um, but we oftentimes overlook the, the, the beauty of, of what is being taught to us there about the church of God. And so Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. When we consider the beauty of the church of God, the bride of Christ, is that before eternity passed, in the the mind's eye of of God, he determined to uh, bring together a people And he would present that people, the father would present that people to the son as a gift, as his bride, the son being the groom and and the church being the bride. And and the Bible tells us in in this beautiful passage in Ephesians chapter 5 that throughout the, the history of the existence of the church, of God's collective people, the community of faith, that God is in a process of sanctifying us and making us holy so that in the end, He might present the church to Himself as without blemish, spotless, without wrinkle or any such thing. We see this beauty and we think of that, that, that um, verse as a wonderful poetic vision statement for what the church is. But we oftentimes disconnect ourselves from the fact that we are a part of that process. God is making us, the church, holy day by day. And yes, we come together as a collective and we sing songs about holiness and we... Um, We declare the Word of God that declares us and calls us to be holy in Christ. But oftentimes, there's a practical side to that, church. And the practical side to that is that we have to fight against sin as a people and as individuals so that we might be holy. Because on one hand, Christ makes us holy in Himself. Christ makes us holy because He is holy. And we have His righteousness and we have His perfection so that we stand in the eyes of God and, we, and, and He sees us as without sin because of Christ's sinlessness. And yet, this already not yet tension of our lives is that we are still striving day by day to fight the sin of our lives as a people. Now, if I passed around a piece of paper this morning with a pen and, and I asked you to write the, the, the deepest, darkest, gravest sins that you're guilty of this morning or this afternoon and I asked you to take that piece of paper and pass it two or three people down from you with your name declared on the top of that piece of paper, we would be nervous, <laughs> we would be appalled because oftentimes as a church we don't oftentimes fight together in that fight for holiness. 
We don't oftentimes bear the weight and the struggle with sin as a community of faith as we might bear the weight of a death of a loved one and sorrow and grief. And church, that's wrong of us. That's wrong of us not to fight the fight of faith together, even in the midst of our own struggle with sin. And so we come together as as believers to say that God has brought us together to be sanctified together, to be made holy together, and in doing so, holding each other accountable to be holy as He is holy, to fight against the sin in our own lives. And folks, we can't fight the sin in each other's lives unless we are confessing the sin in each other's lives and taking other people that confess their sins to us back to the Word of God so that, as as Paul says in Ephesians 5, that like the bride, we would be washed with the water of the Word and sanctified and made holy. Now, I'm jumping out of the gate this morning because I'm excited about a new study in the book of 1 Corinthians. And the reason I introduce our sermon this afternoon that way is because this was the intention of the Apostle Paul. Most particularly, not just in in all the letters, but most particularly in the book of 1 Corinthians, as he is challenging the church, jumping straight out of the gate, really neglecting any of the formalities and jumping straight into a litany, a long list of sin that the Corinthian church had allowed to remain in their midst. And so it's a challenging, it will be a challenging and beautiful study for us to see and, 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 and face the challenges that the Corinthian church faced and then to take that truth and, and, and not to step back in some form of self-righteousness and go, man, those Corinthians were really made, uh, messed up people, but instead to look back and go, how is the Lord going to teach me in this situation about my own personal sin? About how I can be a brother or sister in Christ that can not only fight sin individually by the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit, but also help my brother next to me or my sister next to me fight sin as well for the glory of Christ and the bride that he purchased. And so as always, we approach a letter with an introduction to what's going on how we can best understand this passage. And I intend today to introduce the letter of 1 Corinthians with the passage in Acts 18. Because Acts 18 gives us a lot of clues. It's Paul's first visit to Corinth and his ministry there, the the foundation, the beginnings of his work in Corinth. And so in Acts chapter 18... We will see today the beginning of this young church and we will begin to be introduced to and understand Paul's intentions and his purposes for not only ministering in Corinth, but also for writing the letters that he wrote to them. So bear with me today, there will be some history, there will be some maps, there will be some things that you're not typically used to seeing except in an introductory sermon. And so I hope that you will gravitate to this truth because it's not just facts, it's the discipline of studying God's Word 
in a very detailed and important way. You cannot understand what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians if you don't understand the Corinthians. And so we need to to dive into that culture this morning. Acts chapter 18, Paul begins arriving, leaving Athens, it says in chapter 18 verse 1, and goes to Corinth. And there's some things that we need to understand about Corinth, the city. Studying this New Testament letter requires us to know the environment and the audience in which Paul was speaking and teaching and pastoring and loving. And there's a couple aspects that are important for us to understand in regards to Corinth. First of all, it's geography. It's geography. Corinth was a Greek city located on an isthmus that was connected Peloponnesia which is in southern Greece from the mainland of Greece. Corinth was centrally located. If you can see on that map there, there's there's two cities that are port cities. They're coastal cities. And those two cities, one on the the west, Lycaon, and on the east, Sincrea, these port cities were major port cities for this area. Matter of fact, it was, they were so important because sailors knew that if they sailed south around the edge of Greece, that they would most likely run aground and their boats and their freight and their merchandise would be destroyed. So they knew that the safest journey for them in commerce and sailing was to go into this port. And they, they basically attempted two different things. One, merchants would literally unload their cargo in one port and transport it across the four-mile stretch to another port and load another ship just to be protected. And of course, you can imagine having two ships necessary became very tedious. So you think, well, what's the second option? Well, the second option was they literally built a stone path that was four miles long and they rolled their boats across a four-mile stretch from one port to the next. That's how dangerous the sailing was. Now, smack dab in the middle of these two ports was the city of Corinth, right in the middle, right down that route. History tells us that uh, later on the, the idea came, well, let's just let's, let's build a big canal. Let's build a, uh, a way in which we can continue on sailing. And believe it or not, history says that Nero, King Nero tried, or Emperor Nero tried to, uh, to accomplish this task. It failed with him. It failed with many people up until almost the, uh, the middle of the 19th century when they finally dug a canal across that stretch so that sailboats and ships could travel through. So you can imagine that the geography in itself is important for us as we understand the importance of a, a port city was and, and, and the trade routes that passed through Corinth. There you have the city of Corinth, a hub of merchants and sailors and tradesmen passing through from one port to the next, staying there, eating there, living there, and bringing upon that city its own influences and cultures. 
So Greek, uh, Corinth was, a, as I said, a Greek hub of commerce. Historically, it also brought tourism because of the Isthmus Games that were, were, that were held nearby. So we understand then that, that historically, Corinth was a major city in the Greek Empire. So much so that they renamed this city after Alexander the Great. Or excuse me, they renamed it uh, after Julius Caesar once the the Romans took over uh, and captured it after defeating the Greeks and Alexander the Great. And so Julius Caesar rebuilt the city that was damaged and it became this uh, prized treasure of the Roman Empire and at the gateway of the region of the Romans called Achaia. Matter of fact, the city literally was renamed called, and it was, it was uh, literally uh, referred to as the Corinthian colony, colony is Julian's praise, referring to Ju- Julius Caesar. So you have this rich history. It was first a Greek city. You imagine the influence of the Greeks upon the people there. Then it was captured by the Romans, destroyed and then rebuilt under Julius Caesar, becoming a prized treasure for the Roman Empire. And because of the Greeks, and because of the Romans, and because of the cultures that passed through there, you can imagine what type of people and belief systems and influences permeated the city of Corinth. Corinth has been called by many scholars the Las Vegas of the ancient world. It was given that name because of the unbelievable immorality that plagued the city. That transient populace traveling through the great city brought about all kinds of great sins. And there, smack dab in the middle, was a church that began to be planted by the Apostle Paul to fight against, to be a light in the midst of darkness. Greeks began to coin the phrase to Corinthianize, which meant to literally live an immoral lifestyle. That immorality and licentiousness was fueled by a great temple in the Acro-Corinth, which is a, a, a large raised area, and in that temple was a temple to Aphrodite, which was by all means a hub for the immorality and, and, the, and the intimate behaviors, uh, the immoral behaviors that, that uh, flowed from that in the worship of false gods. So you understand the roots you understand the, the, the palette in which uh, Paul was going to minister uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And also you will see in their passage today that as Paul goes, he encounters Jewish people. So imagine, you have Roman religion, a polytheistic ideas. You have Greek religion, which also a polytheistic ideas. You have Judaism... There with a monotheism, the worship of one God. And Paul is coming in proclaiming Christ in the synagogues there. Look with me in chapter 18. It says, Paul left Athens, went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. 
And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogues every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. Now let's stop here for a moment and just acknowledge that we see once again God working through uh, His sovereignty and His providence and bringing about the gospel uh, throughout the world. This was not just a strategy of Paul. This is the way in which God brought about the, the advancement of the gospel across the world. Paul knew and understood that the most effective way to implant the gospel and allow it to spread is not to go to the countryside and allow a couple agricultural farmers to tell their buddies on the farm. It was to go into a city because you had the most effective means of spreading the gospel, planting churches, and allowing that gospel proclamation to spread out from those major cities through trade routes and routes across the lands into those agricultural places. And there Paul would do what he's always done. He would begin his work of gospel proclamation by going to the Jews. He would go to the synagogues and he would proclaim. And he would teach them the gospel. And oftentimes, as we see here, he was rejected by those that he shared with. But first we see him interact with Aquila and Priscilla. And Aquila and Priscilla were most believed to be a husband and wife. They were living in Rome. And the Bible tells us here, historically accurate information, that the Jews were disbanded from Rome by Claudius the emperor because of the rioting and the uprisings that that occurred. And so Aquila and Priscilla had to leave Rome because of this edict by Emperor Claudius. And there they encounter Paul as they join up in Corinth. And Aquila and Priscilla are tent makers. And in their tent making trade, they meet Paul who is also a tent maker. And they join up together and and they invite Paul to come and stay with them. And this is the underpinnings, this is the beginnings of the work of Paul in this ministry. Because what we will see later on is that Aquila and Priscilla, uh, Priscilla travel with Paul beyond Corinth, ministering the gospel and starting house churches. But the Bible tells us that that as he meets Aquila and Priscilla, they begin to to serve as tent makers. And if you think about it, based back on to the culture of this city, why would they need tent work there in the city? Well, because you have so much traveling and, and, and a populace of people moving in and out. And in doing so, there's work to be done. You have people traveling in for the Isthmus Games. And why would they uh, benefit from that? Because Paul and them and Aquila and Priscilla could build and make tents through, from their leather working uh, and, and earn an income in order to fund the ministry that they're involved in. So as we think about the, the way in which gospel advancement works, we understand that, that Paul was bringing about uh, going into a city a major city 
We'll see in a minute that he goes into the synagogues, reasoning in the synagogues on the Sabbath. And in doing so, he gets a job and he begins working. And in that trade, he begins to promote and proclaim the gospel to the people around him. This is the uh, simple strategy, church, that we as believers should have every day. Wherever we live, we learn these simple strategies from Paul, whether you're planning a church or you're, you're, you're going to work day by day to be faithful as a believer, you understand that, that wherever God has planted you, you are sharing the gospel and proclaiming the gospel as you go. That's what Paul was doing. If you meet up with people, you might consider and discern, is, Lord, is this a, a couple that, like Aquila and Priscilla, do they need to know the gospel? Well, for Paul's sake, they didn't need to know the gospel. They understood it. They were faithful in understanding the gospel. And therefore, they became allies. They became partners with Paul. They became companions in ministry. And if you continue on, and we'll get through this at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul says this. He says, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now that verse is very important for us as we consider Aquila and Priscilla. Because when we finish this story in Acts chapter 18, we see that Aquila and Priscilla, along with Paul, they travel to Ephesus. They leave Corinth and they travel to Ephesus. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he states that he is staying in Ephesus. Therefore, we understand that Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians from Ephesus with Aquila and Priscilla as he ministered there after his time in Corinth. Paul exchanged letters with this newfound church in Corinth. And upon his time in Ephesus, learned of issues that had arisen in this newfound church. Paul ministered in the church of Corinth for a year and a half. So you can imagine that it allowed a church to be established, it allowed leadership to be built up. And as Paul leaves, he continues correspondence with the people in Corinth, and in doing so, he discovers sin that has arisen in the church, and he comes to deal with it. And so Paul is, as I said, in Corinth. He has these companions, Aquila and Priscilla, which are important for us to understand because knowing who they are helps us identify the timeline in which Paul writes the book of 1 Corinthians. And can I just say, and, and, and kind of take a side soapbox for a moment, it, it's so encouraging to me to see Paul go into a city, and as he's beginning to minister the gospel, as a minister, be willing to go out and work with his own hands to do what needs to be done. You guys all understand that as a church, we have set out to, to model that, that, that system for us here. Our elders all work other jobs as we minister to you. And we're not saying that that's the only way, but our, uh, we are encouraged as elders to know that our, our salaries and, the, and the, the money that we make as elders are not a burden to this church so that we might do other things and be effective in ministry in other ways. 
And Paul continues throughout his writings to remind them, the the people in Corinth and other churches that he established, that he did not want to be a burden financially to those that he ministered to. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we will get to this at some point in the, in the next couple years. He says, It is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he take, uh, he says, Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, he says, because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Paul says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, listen to this, nevertheless, Paul says, we have not made use of this right, but we endure Anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know, he says, that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? So I want you to understand that the beginnings of the church in Corinth was accomplished by a man who was working a day job doing what was necessary so that he was not a financial burden. And he tells the people in Corinth, in Acts, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, listen, it's my right as a minister of the gospel to ask you to support me. And he goes back to Old Testament language and Old Testament scripture, referring to the ox that would not be muzzled so that as he treads out the grain, he could eat and be filled and, and fed. And yet he says in verse 12, I will not claim that right so that there's no obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Man, I'm so encouraged by that. I'm encouraged to know that Paul accomplished great things for the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way that that we as elders do the same. That we don't always have to have giant budgets with salaries and, 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 and health benefits and all those things. Those things are wonderful. But church, sometime in the near future, all those things may be taken away. Every bit of it. And are we still going to be faithful to get our hands dirty and get calluses on our hands to be willing to share the gospel and advance the gospel in a completely different experience than we've ever imagined in the United States in the last 50 to 100 to 200 years? And I think we are. And in this soapbox moment, if you could just continue to entertain for a second, let me remind you that the same challenge is for you. That as you think about your responsibility as a believer in Jesus Christ... And the work that you put in caring for your family and the work that you put in in, in raising your children and working hard day by day... We can't allow our exhaustion as human beings in a secular world to, to quench or cease our participation in the advancement of the gospel. We just can't do it. So this message and this challenge, even by Paul in Acts chapter 18, in seeing that he was working faithfully in the world and planting churches, should challenge all of us to say, we need to be busy 
doing the work of gospel ministry regardless of 40 or 60 hours a week, not to neglect our families, not to uh, deprive ourselves of, 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 of health and sleep, but to be faithful in doing what God has put us on this earth to do. Not retirement funds, not annuities, not 401ks, disciple-making, church-planning, gospel advancement. That's what He sent us to do. It's a responsibility of every believer. Aquila and Priscilla teach us that. Paul teaches that. Jesus ultimately teaches us that as He was faithful to endure much harder things than gangful employment by being faithful to go to the cross and give His own very life so that we might be redeemed. Another companion of Paul is Crispus. We read in as we continue in chapter 18, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ or the Messiah was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own hands. I'm innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to a house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Now understand that... Again, by God's sovereignty and providence in the life of Paul, Paul is carrying out exactly what the Lord Jesus told Paul he was going to do. That he was going to minister the gospel, not necessarily to the house of Israel, but primarily to the Gentiles. And what did Paul experience? Every city he goes into, even though he goes to the synagogues to minister, most of the synagogues run Paul out of town. Most of the Jews are trying to stone him. They're trying to hurt him. And at this moment here, Paul says, Fine, the blood be on your heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he leaves there. He goes next door to a house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God, who lived next door to the synagogue. And what does God do? How does God bless Paul's faithfulness? Literally, the synagogue leader will call him the Jewish pastor of the synagogue and his entire family follow Paul next door, leaving the synagogue, leaving the people that they led in the synagogue in their worship of Judaism, and they follow Paul there and accept the gospel and his entire household is saved. God blessing Paul's faithfulness in the midst of really a a very difficult time. Being reviled by the Jews, being rejected in such a way could lead us to despair, calling us to give up in, in, in the affairs of the gospel, but Paul was faithful. And Crispus... This house of the the ruler of the synagogue believes in the Lord. God opens his eyes to believe in his household, also hearing the gospel and believing. And God blesses and begins the Corinthian church, as it says, many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. 
Christmas is interesting in our study of 1 Corinthians because as Paul begins to address some of the issues in the Corinthian church, the very first issue that Paul deals with is division and disunity in the church. And Paul names Crispus as one of the two Corinthians that he baptizes in that church. He baptizes Gaius and he baptizes Crispus. Which means that the leader of the synagogue was not just giving mouth service to say that he believed in Christ under Paul's ministry, but he was faithful to be baptized publicly in the city of Corinth where there were a Jewish population that had settled there, turning away from Judaism and, and, and trusting in Christ alone for His salvation. And in doing so, being baptized by the apostle and continuing on in, the, in faithfulness in the church. Last companion is Sosthenes. Look all the way down to verse 17. In verses 12 through 17, I'm just going to summarize this. In verses 12 through 17, Paul is taken to uh, Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia. And the Jews are still trying to attack Paul and they're bringing these charges upon Paul. And as we saw throughout Paul's ministry, the Lord protected him. The Lord guides him and allows him safe passage and safe escape away just as he does Peter and John earlier in the book of Acts. And Gallio the proconsul is hearing this case and he settles in this case that, hey guys, you Jews are bringing these uh, accusations against Paul. These are Jewish matters, they're not Roman matters. And so we're going to dismiss Paul and let him go. And the Bible tells us in verse 17 that all the Jews see Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, another synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Another companion of Paul that's interesting, interestingly here, we see that Sosthenes, is, his own people begin to beat him up. Obviously, we don't know the, the circumstances around Sosthenes' um, interaction in this, uh, this uh, court case, you would say, uh, before Gallio. But what we see is that the, the, the Jews turn on Sosthenes. They turn on Sosthenes, beat him up. And then later on in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul refers to Sosthenes as the very subject or companion of, of him in writing the book or the letter of 1 Corinthians. Paul would also oftentimes address companions, people that are with him. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul literally addresses himself as the author of uh, the book of Corinthians, the, of 1 Corinthians, and he includes Sosthenes as a ministry companion. Now, some scholars want to speculate there could be another Sosthenes, and that, uh, I admit that could be true, but very unlikely since the book of Acts, inspired by the Holy Spirit, allows us to meet a Sosthenes who is beat up by his own people, and then later on a Sosthenes that is an accompaniment or a companion to Paul in his public ministry.
So by seeing these companions, what I want you to understand is that it gives us this this basic fundamental understanding of, of what Paul's ministry was like in Corinth. The different scenarios that he had to endure. But as I started this sermon, what I want us to conclude with is the purpose of this book. We know Paul wrote the book. We know that he wrote it from Ephesus. And we have to ask the question, why did he write it? And as I stated at the beginning, he wrote the book to deal with correction in the church. Correction in the church. I love in Acts chapter 18, Paul was visited by the the Lord Jesus. And he's told after his successful uh, ministry there, especially among this ruler of the synagogue and the, the family that are, the, the Corinthians that are being saved and believing and being baptized. And the Lord says to Paul, do not be afraid, go on, do not, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Let me tell you, that cannot be more encouraging words to a man who had endured so much as a, a, a church planner and a gospel proclaimer and preacher to know that as he ministered in Corinth, that God was going to provide, he was going to raise up many of his people, the Bible says. That he was calling from darkness to marvelous light. He was raising them up to salvation. Which, by the way, church, are people that had been foreordained and elected before the foundation of the world. Paul's not yet met these people. These are those the Lord Jesus is going to draw to salvation in Him. And Paul begins to meet these people in verse 11 for the next year and a half, staying there, preaching the gospel, teaching the Word of God among them. But what I'm encouraged by as we go forward in 1 Corinthians is that Paul did not just have boldness and courage to proclaim the gospel. The whole book of 1 Corinthians is his boldness to continue to apply the gospel in the sanctification of the church. Listen, it takes great courage to call people to sin and repentance. To expose the things that you might see in their life. To do it with gentleness and love and yet great courage and boldness. And so while the words of the Lord Jesus were to not be afraid, to go on speaking, not be silent, for He will continue to bless in, in the salvation and the building up of the church in Corinth, Paul applied that same courage and boldness in the sanctification of that church. That courage and boldness that you and I need day by day to do what God has called us to do. To strive for holiness. To strive for a pure church. A church that seeks to to banish and purge sin from our midst. This was the message for Paul. That he would lead his people to a sanctifying process in addressing different myriad of aspects and and sins that had crept up in the Corinthian church. I would almost say that 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 and 7 would be somewhat of a summary statement for this whole letter. 
Paul tells the Corinthians in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Paul admonishes these believers in the Corinthian church, now established, now understanding what Christ has done for them, allowing sin among their midst. And Paul uses words like cleanse out the old leaven. This imagery, this Old Testament imagery of yeast and leaven, which allows bread to rise, Paul uses that imagery, an imagery that had been used even in the Old Testament for sin and the effects of sin in the community. And his greatest desire, as Ephesians chapter 5 tells us, is that the bride of Christ would be a pure bride, would be a holy bride. Not a bride that flirts with sin. Not a bride that, that, that uh, nurtures sin and, and allows sin to percolate in its midst. Instead, he uses words like flee sexual immorality, purge sin, cleanse it from your midst. All exhortations to them to remove the sin among them. And so I've entitled this study, The Church at Corinth, Struggling to be in the world, but not of the world. Because that's the challenge for all of us. That word, those words were words that Jesus used in John chapter 17, in His prayer to the Father, that as He left them, His people, that they were not of the world, He says, just as He is not of the world. But instead, he prays to the Father, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth, as you sent me into the world, so I am sending them into the world. For their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. And so church, our challenge as as believers at redemption is the same challenge as believers in Corinth with all the exterior influences of the world around us that are attacking our marriages and are attacking our our, our relationship with Christ, are attacking our children. They're coming from all fronts. We have to strive to be a community of believers in Jesus who do not allow our lives to be reflective of being of the world, but only in the world. That we would strive for holiness, growing in Christ, being sanctified by the Word of God. Knowing the sufficiency of the Scriptures are what we need to grow in, in godliness and holiness in Christ. Not giving in to social pressures and, and things that from, from the outside that, that tend to say to us as, as, as a church, well, you need to, to be, uh, believe in these things to be effective. You need to adhere to, to these ideas and, and, and these, what we would call myths and, 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 and ideologies in order to be effective and reach the most amount of people. And when we say those things, then we're not really trusting in a sufficiency of Scripture. Because we see that Paul is sent to a city like Corinth. He's rejected by the Jews. He continues to be faithful. And he sees a 
a surplus, a, a, a fruit of salvation and belief in Christ. So we just have to trust God's Word. Trust that His Word can save the darkest, most lost soul that we can imagine. Trust God's Word that it can change our marriage, it can grow us in Christ. Trust His power of the resurrection that that can literally help us and and help uh, fuel us to overcome the darkest sins that we wrote on those little metaphorical pieces of paper that we didn't want to pass to our neighbors. And learn and grow from letters like 1 Corinthians that seeks for there to be a holy church. Let me give you an outline real quick. I'll post this on Faith Life this week so you don't have to furiously write. The outline of 1 Corinthians is simply this, and I'll be done. Chapters 1 through 4 focuses on unity in the church. Chapter 5, purity in the church. Let me stop there at chapter 5. Parents, I want to be honest with you. There's going to be some issues brought up in chapter 5 that I will be very careful in my presentation with young ears in our church. But I want you to be aware that the Word of God, what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and you make wise decisions as parents in those days, I will give you forewarning. I will do my best to be um, uh, provide a safe environment as I preach. Um, but we don't want to take away from what the Word of God teaches and acknowledges as, as sin in the church. Chapter 6 is reconciliation. Chapter 7 speaks on marriage in the church. 8 through 11 is conduct. 12 through 14, the famous uh, what is order in the church, spiritual gifts, things of that nature. Chapter 15, the great resurrection hope for the church. And 16 is uh, final matters like collection, collecting of money and closing matters that Paul deals with. So you know me. This is going to be a long journey. It took us five years to go through the Gospels. So buckle up. Get ready, because I'm excited to take this journey with us together, learning from this letter to the Corinthian church. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for, uh, God, just the simplicity of expository preaching. Lord, it is a joy for me to uh, look, look ahead for many Sundays to come and God, to carefully, delicately, and faithfully plod through um, the Word of God verse by verse. sermon like this today is very unique in introducing things, but Father, we are challenged today to live holy people as holy people. To strive for her holiness, to turn away from sin. And Father, I pray right now by Your Spirit that that even in this introductory to this letter, God, that you have so stirred and moved our hearts that, that we would be repentant people. That however the world has influenced us in different ways, God, we would repent and turn to Christ, trusting in His cleansing effect. 
knowing that He gets supreme glory for the transformation of our lives. And we thank You for Jesus. And we thank You for the work that He has accomplished for us. And we give praise to His name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.